If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn to the New Testament book of Romans. I'm going to read just one uh, small short verse from Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. As you turn there, uh, let me just say that if you are a visitor uh, with us this morning, uh, Pastor Paul is our regular preacher, and uh, he is uh, taking this Sunday off from preaching, and that also Bethlehem Walk is something that begins uh, this coming Saturday. It's something that hundreds of people in our church are involved in with in order to present the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the community here in uh, Oceanside. But um, And I'm new to this church and new to this community, but from what I understand of the anticipation and the expectation of Bethlehem Walk, uh, far beyond uh, the Oceanside community as well. And so I was pretty overwhelmed uh, at the meeting yesterday where a couple hundred people came uh, as volunteers to prepare for Bethlehem Walk. And I began to really feel and sense the excitement and, and the anticipation of it. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says this, For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, sorry, by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, please break it for us and help us to understand it and to be nourished upon it. As we approach the Christmas season, I'm going to use this short text from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans to engage on some Some of you may be annoyed with me this morning. Perhaps we should get the ushers to lock the doors. But I'm going to ask you to engage in some theological reflection with me this morning. Not in order to give you information about Jesus. If you leave here simply with more information about Jesus or reaffirmed about the knowledge you have about Jesus, then I have failed. But we would that in this Christmas season, we would use the knowledge that the scriptures give us about Christ, about why he came in order that it would be our daily bread. The Lord taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And he wasn't just talking about food. He was talking about also himself. As he said, I am real food. And that is my prayer is that as I talk about the Apostle Paul's words about Christ, what Paul declares to us to be true about Christ in this Christmas season, that you would use the opportunity for a reflection. And that, that and this is the desire of my own heart too. I, I, I don't simply want to have knowledge about Jesus. I, I, I want it to be my daily bread. I want, it, I want it to penetrate my life. I want it to define my very existence. I want it to uh, affect my character. I want it to define the world in which I live. If you can get this, if you can get this simple phrase that is these words from Jeremiah 23, 6, but it's what the Apostle Paul was, was talking about here also in Romans five nineteen. If you can get this, this simple phrase this Christmas, I trust the Holy Spirit will nourish you on it. And that phrase is this, that Jesus Christ is my righteousness. 
And that's what God promised in Jeremiah 23, 6. He says, when, when I come as a shepherd to, to put away all of the bad shepherds that have not fed my flock, and when I come as a shepherd, which Jesus did come as the good shepherd, he says, this is what you will say. You will say, the Lord is my righteousness. Not simply the Lord is righteous, but the Lord is my righteousness. And that is what I want to set before you this morning through this simple text. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. That we can say today, the Lord is my righteousness because of Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. My main point, or what I believe the main point of that verse is, is this. That Christ came into this world. And this is what we're celebrating at Christmas, is that he did indeed come. That Christ came into this world to give us what we could never earn. And that thing is righteousness. And to take away from us what has already been earned for us. And that is condemnation. As the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul's point is simple. That there is some congruity. There is some similarity in God's dealings with us through Adam and Christ. He says earlier in the text, I didn't read it, but it says earlier in the text that Adam is a type, that Adam is a pattern that illustrates how God deals with us in Christ. Very simply, that there is some connection. If you can get this, okay, there is some connection between Adam and and Christ. And if you can understand how God has dealt with us in Adam, then that is an illustration to serve to understand how is it that God has dealt with us in Christ or is dealing with us in Christ. And in that connection, in that parallel, in that pattern, Paul brings together two questions. Two of some of the most fundamental questions of life, and this is why I say if you can get this. If you can understand this. It will completely alter your life because those these two questions are so fundamental. The first one is, why do I face the prospect of dying? What is it about the world in which I live that I know with, with absolute certainty that I face the prospect of death? Is it because I've done something wrong? You know, I've been to funerals where I've wondered, Lord, why couldn't that person have died 50 years earlier? Honestly, I'm sorry to say it, but... Wicked people do die. And so many problems, so many relationships, so many ongoing issues could have been solved if death only could have come earlier. But I've also been at funerals and I've, I've, I've cried. Lord, why? Why death in this person? 
It is one of the most fundamental questions that, that we ask. Why do I face the prospect of death? But then Paul, almost like a, a, a transparency overlay as you, as you, as you, as you hang on that, that first question, is that first question is there. Is it because I've done something wrong that I face death? The second question comes that is also one of the most fundamental questions that, that we face in life is how is it that in this world that I could ever call God my Father? And it defines our, our, our own being, our own, the way that we make in this world, how we, how we understand ourselves. It affects all the relationships that we ever have in this world. And, and if we can answer this question, how is it that I could be so audacious to call God my Father? And, and what is needed is righteousness. We know that. And so the, it, the two fundamental questions, not only have I done something wrong, but Paul immediately then goes to the relevant question of Christmas is, have I done something good? Is that why I can expect to call God Father? Because I've done something good? It's a fascinating text. And the answer to both of those questions is no. It doesn't matter what kind of life you live, you will face death. It doesn't matter how good you are, You will never escape it. And it doesn't matter how good you are, you will never earn it. The righteousness. The ability to call God Father. Now, (laughs) I am aware very keenly that I'm dealing with a text that is perplexing, is contentious in many people's minds. Let me say this, that Paul is in no way abolishing human responsibility for our sins. He says very clearly earlier in the book, Romans 3.23 says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He he is, is in no way saying, well, I don't have to worry about my sins because, hey, that's not why I face death anyway. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Nor is he saying that, we no longer have or, or put aside the responsibility to live and walk righteously because it is not earned for us. That is, that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. What, what, what he does abolish, what, what, what he does strip away is not those human responsibilities. What he does strip away and abolish is to think that by my own actions, acting in my own self, that I can either escape death or earn righteousness. That's what he's saying. And in doing so, he abolishes two of the greatest tools the devil has. And I don't know about you, but that's the food that I eat every day. I need the tools of the devil abolished. Because he handles me. Those tools are, first of all, pride. Look at what I've done. And secondly, insecurity. Have I done enough? And he strips them away. 
And he says you can do neither. You can neither escape death, nor can you earn righteousness. Now, further to the text, there's something that I want to point out that Paul makes a point about Christ and Adam, is that there is something identical. Something identical between Adam and Christ. And that one thing is that their actions have global implications. The emphasis of one man, by one man's disobedience, by one man's obedience. In this, Adam and Christ are the same. They are identical. And, and, and I hope you can see what Paul is doing. He, he's, he's lifting up one. He's picking up one. Say, do you see this? Now, look at the other. Because there's a comparison. And in this, Adam and Christ are identical. Both of them have acted in a way that has global implications. Adam and Christ are identical as people whose actions affect people who have not participated in those actions. And again, Paul is is not denying that my individual sins make me worthy of death. He's not denying that my righteous deeds are necessary, are, are indeed necessary if I trust in Jesus. But he is saying that before I ever sinned, death was already earned for me. And he's saying that before I ever obeyed Christ, righteousness was already earned for me. Now let me just stop and point out something about human nature. Because there is something on the one hand here that we're offended by. Hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. And there's also something on the other hand that we completely depend on. We say, isn't it wonderful? But it's the same principle. We are participating in, in the consequences of the action of another person without ever having done those actions ourselves. And it's at the same time offensive. If you look, do you know what it's like to be blamed for something that you never participated in? And that's where we have this sense of, wait, wait a minute, that's not fair. But this is the human nature part, that we tend to only complain about unfairness when it's to our disadvantage. And when the unfairness is to our advantage, we say, isn't it great? Paul is saying you need to understand why it is that you die so that you can understand how it is that you can live. Adam acted for us. Christ acted for us. Why is that significant? Let me try to explain why that is so significant. Because people who understand their guilt solely in the realm of their own actions will also constantly tend to think of their righteousness also only in terms of their own actions. 
I long for people to understand the words. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And so often we only ever think of our righteousness in terms of what we do. And, you know, I'm not saying that that isn't proper and good Christian thought. But that is in the stream of Christian living. I'm talking here about what the fountainhead of Christian life that creates that stream. And it is good and proper to talk about, about having righteous deeds. But if we only ever think of our righteousness in terms of what we do, it's because we've only ever thought of our sin in terms of what I have done. Which only leads us to two things. Either discouragement, which says, I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. Perpetual discouragement. Or, I don't know which is worse, pride that says, I think I've done enough. There is no way for you or me to ever call God, Father. Unless you accept the idea of someone else's actions being attributed to you. We live in such a right-orientated democracy that it's, as Christians, I think, even difficult to penetrate and accept how God deals with us. And Adam and in Christ. See, Adam is more than merely a historical example where we would say, well, Adam sinned and I sin. And the reason that I die is because I've done things that are wrong. As true as that may be, ultimately, there's more to it. But if that is the only way that we ever think about ourselves and Adam, then the corresponding way that we think about Christ is like this. Christ came. He did good things. Now I do good things. Therefore, I'm righteous. The way that Christ deals with us, or the way that God deals with us in Christ is like Nothing else we experience on earth. There's a lot of good people in this world, a lot of people that have influenced this world in powerful, wonderful ways. I'm watching the news about the death of Nelson Mandela this week and think, what a, an amazing thing to... how one person can affect a whole country and really the whole world in such a, a marvelous way. And, but that is not the proper way to think about Christ, as if... If, as if Jesus was, was a good leader like that, only exponentially greater because he was God. It's in a completely different realm, a completely different way that God deals with us in Christ. And God and Paul uses the illustration of Adam and why we experience death to explain how God deals with us in Christ, to explain how is it that I can be righteous. 
I'm going to read something from history. And the reason I'm going to, to go back a couple of centuries is because this uh, is something that puts an image in your mind, puts an image in my mind. And images are helpful to try to picture what it is that I'm talking about instead of it uh, uh, merely being uh, theoretical. And it is from uh, the 17th century from a Puritan writer by the name of Thomas Goodwin. This is what he he says. Paul speaks of of Adam and Christ as if there had never been any more than two people in the world or two men in the world, nor were ever to be more forever except these two, Adam and Christ. And why? Because these two between them had all the rest of the people hanging on their belt. Actually, he uses the word girdle, but we don't use the word girdle to refer to our, our, our belt anymore. So I've changed that word from, from, from girdle to belt. But this is how Thomas described the entire population of the world is, is, is hanging on the belts of either Adam or Christ. And then another person expounds that thought this way and says that imagine two great giants. And I don't want to give you nightmares or anything like that, but, but, uh, like I say, this is, this is a vivid picture. This is, this is a vivid, vivid image of two great giants, one called Adam and the other Christ. Each is wearing an enormous leather belt with millions of little hooks on it. And you and I and all of humanity are hanging either at Adam's belt or in Christ's belt. There is no third option. No other place for us. You get the picture? It's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? And God deals with us only through Adam or through Christ. If you are hanging at Adam's belt, you share in the experience of sinful fallen Adam. And your entire relationship with God is through him, through Adam. But if you are hanging at Christ's belt, all God's dealings with you are through Christ. And when you received Jesus as your Savior, you were involved in a massive, momentous transfer The Almighty Himself unhooked you from Adam's belt and hooked you onto Christ's belt so you now have a different head, a different mediator, a new representative. You've passed from Adam into Christ. And whereas God formerly dealt with you only through Adam, He now deals with you only through His Son. You are in Christ unchangeably and forever. I love that. And it begs the question, whose belt do you hang on? Thank the Lord that there is not only something identical between Adam and Christ, that there is also something very, very different between Adam and Christ. The difference, of course, is plain from the text. The one was disobedience. The other was obedience. The one is sin and condemnation. The other is justification and righteousness. And I hope you celebrate this at Christmas. That Christ did not come in the pattern of Adam merely to repeat what Adam did, but to do what the first Adam failed to do. To give to his posterity righteousness. Love that old prayer of Augustine. Or if you're Presbyterian, Augustine said, 
I had it hanging over my desk for so many years. It summed up so much for me. Lord, commandest what thou wilt, but givest what thou commandest. He commands righteousness. And he gives what he commands. I love stories. And I love to hear the stories of when people come to faith. But inevitably, in the lives of Christians, in the life of my own personal experience, there's multiple stories where we come to faith, but we, we come to faith not fully understanding what it is all that Christ has done for us until we try to live the, a righteous life, until we try to cast off sin, until we, until we try to love Christ more than, more than anything else in this world. And I love to hear the stories. I love to hear the story of when the penny drops in people's lives when they understand this. Ah, it is Jesus who is my righteousness. God has done more than just show me Jesus so I can believe in Him. He's done more than just expound His work so that I can trust in Him. He has done so much more. He has put me in Christ. As He will go on in chapter 6 to say, we are buried with Him in His baptism. We are buried, we are raised with Him in His resurrection. I love to hear those, those, those stories and Sometimes I wish there were more of them. One of my favorite stories, again, is from history. It's from the autobiography of John Bunyan. If you've never read the autobiography of John Bunyan, it's a slender little volume called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. John Bunyan was a tinkerer. And uh, I don't think any of, anybody of us would be flattered by being called a tinkerer today. But uh, I learned uh, after the first service, someone helpful, helpfully reminded me that it simply means he worked with tin. And so an honest profession. And But it meant that he traveled a lot. John Bunyan would be out in the countryside, the English countryside, wandering, not wandering, working from town to town, traveling on foot, and spent a, a lot of the hours of every day out on the open sky. And his autobiography are, is a description of his thoughts that he would have as he's wrestling with these things. As I said earlier, the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with are the kinds of things that cut to the very core of our very existence, that every human being who's ever lived has thought about had to deal with. And one day as he was passing into the field, he says this, these words fell upon my soul. These are the words. Thy righteousness is in heaven. He's speaking here of Christ. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And he says, and I thought, I saw with my eyes, the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there I said to myself, there is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that he lacks righteousness. For it was right there. It was right just in front of him. And I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ. The same today, yesterday, and forevermore. 
You see what he's saying there? He's saying, look at my God can always see me as righteous no matter where I am because my righteousness is always sitting right beside him in heaven. It's amazing. A few implications. Number one, these are the implications. The first implication, most significantly, most important in my own life, is this. is a work of the Spirit that gives affection for Christ. This is how God woos us to Him. This is how God works in our lives to, to, to humble us before Him and give Him our hearts and, and turn our back on everything else in our life that we would love and trust and put our security in and to say, I love Him above all else. Not only do I trust Him, not only do I believe in Him, I love Him. As Paul says in chapter verse 5 of this same chapter, he prays that the, 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 the love of God would would we pour it into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's such a wonderful and vivid description of what he would go on to describe of what happens in the life of the believer, of the heart being ripped open, ripped open wide, and, and the love of God poured into it. This is how God woos us. Secondly, the obliteration of a self-righteous, legalistic, works religion that we want to be so far away from. God help us. You see, the kind of economy that God is described in treating us in Adam and in Christ has its own currency. Have you ever been caught in an economy where you've had the wrong currency? You've been traveling, you forgot to stop at the at the train station or, or in the airport and get the right kind of currency and you, and you go out and you, and you can't get anything, you can't purchase anything because you're stuck there with the wrong currency and you can't, you can't engage the economy. So also in the economy of God. If you have the wrong currency and that wrong currency is good works, if you bring the currency of good works into the economy of God, you can purchase nothing. The economy or the, the currency and the economy of God is faith. Lay hold of it, believe it, and let God give it to you. Thirdly, the most difficult to describe, but I can't close without trying to articulate this implication. I'll use these words. I hope you understand it. But if we understand how God deals with us in Christ, the implication should be that we live in this world more comfortable in our own skin. I long for Christians not to be ruled by insecurity and fear, not to be so easily insulted by people in the lives around them, not to be afraid of intimacy and marriage but to be comfortable in their own skin. When Adam and Eve first failed, when they first sinned, it says that they hid themselves because of their shame as, as an understanding or, 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 a, or a consciousness of other people's gaze. And I think it's tragically ironic that people still use religion today to hide because they're not comfortable in their own skin. They're still afraid. They're still insecure. And they use religion and the self-righteousness of it. It's a paradox. 
But I believe the implication, I hope that you can reflect on this and, and celebrate and, and rejoice in Christ coming as a second Adam this year, this Christmas, to be free from the tyranny of our life that begins with acceptance with others and rather enjoy a life that begins with acceptance with God.